This is episode 135 with Derek McManus. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. Hey, legends, it's back. The podcast is back after a little break. If you're in the podcast private Facebook group, you would have seen my announcement a while ago that I decided to pause the frequency of this podcast because life was getting pretty hectic since the arrival of our beautiful baby, Oliver. I'm not going to lie, this first five months of parenting has been freaking challenging. And this isn't to complain, but just uh, having a baby with really bad reflux and colic and a bub that doesn't like to sleep is freaking challenging. <laughs> and to align with my visions of being a present and involved father, it's also very time consuming. All for the right reasons and with a lot of love and gratitude, of course. But that simply means to align with my beliefs of living for a lifestyle and getting the most out of life and living for lifestyle and connection to my loved ones, not living for stress and burnout, something on my plate had to be removed or slowed down. And unfortunately, one of those things was the podcast, which was a really hard decision, to be honest, because as you long-time listeners know, this podcasting journey has a very deep why behind it for me. And I also freaking love it. I personally learn a lot and get a ton of value from the guests that I interview and I also love getting feedback from you listeners and hearing about the ripple effect of the podcast. So the good news is the podcast is here to stay but the other part of that equation is that I simply don't know the frequency of episode releases and I apologize for that. I'd love to say it could be two per month but reality is it might be one per month or one month I might release two and one month it might be one but it's here to stay. Now, here's a bit of a vulnerable mindset shift here for me in regards to this. From a business and marketing perspective, I truly understand the value and importance of the consistency of the frequency of this podcast. I totally get it, hence why I've stuck with it for over two years. Actually, in the early days, I even bumped up to two episodes per week for a short period of time. But I don't live life for marketing and business perspectives. I live life and do the work that I do because I believe it's aligned with part of my purpose and also because it's impactful, life-changing and rewarding. So from my soulful self, not a business marketing self, from my soulful self, thank you to all you listeners who do choose to tune into your life of impact from here on in, even though it's not one of your weekly podcasts on your playlist at the moment. More than that, thank you to those who listen with the intent to take action on what you hear and learn from the guests and myself and allow the true value of podcasts and their ripple effects to shine. Now, I've got some great guests lined up for the rest of the year and this one today 
this episode, this guy, this one is sure to get you thinking differently. It's an absolute ripper and it should instill belief and optimism into your life. What an intriguing story you're about to hear. It's gruesome and intense, but the real reward for you listening to this episode is to hear what mindsets and strategies you can implement into your life because of the perception that Derek has of the world and his passion for sharing his beliefs and in his empowering strategies to allow you to live an optimal life. If you experience life challenges like anxiety, panic, mental illness, stress of any kind, small or large, if you judge yourself or worry about other people's judgment or if you experience fear or worry that holds you back or on the other end of the spectrum, if you're a high achiever and you want to go beyond resilience and live a life of optimal performance or if you have any challenge, dream or vision on your journey as a human being in your human experience, you're definitely going to get an abundance of value from this one. I was fully drawn into this chat and drawing parallels of our simple challenges in life to how Derek has overcome death. Yes, death. Derek McManus was a sniper, special ops diver and counter-terrorist operative with the elite special tasks and rescue, so that's S-T-A-R, Star Group, of the South Australian Police. And you'll hear Derek talk about Star Group and Staries in this chat. During a high-risk arrest in 1994, he was shot 14 times in less than five seconds with a high-powered rifle. And he says, I was left lying on the ground, bleeding to death for three hours before I was rescued. I was well aware of what happens to the body as it is drained of blood. I lost so much blood that I could monitor my organs closing down. My blood supply got so low that even my vision closed down and all I saw was a pristine white light. The first doctor to get to me later said to the media, he'd almost lost all his blood. I still don't know how he actually survived. He's an incredible human. Wow. Now I'll let you hear Derek tell his story now in this episode. But like I said, and like with all my episodes, you'll get more out of his perception of life, the human experience, and how we can all enhance and optimize our physical, mental, and emotional well-being to be the best version of ourselves so now let's hear from the legend himself Derek McManus so Derek talk to me about the power and importance of open honest conversations with ourselves okay so open honest confronting conversations with ourselves is uh, the underlying principle uh, behind the human durability um, philosophy that I talk about. So human durability is about being able to go beyond resilience, resilience being the ability to bounce back. So going beyond resilience to sustaining optimal performance. If we don't have confronting conversations with ourselves, even though we know something massive may happen in the future, instinctively we know that things are out there that could happen really, really badly. But sometimes we don't address them. And so if they do happen and we haven't mentally addressed them, um, then they're going to destroy our lives. So these are the things that when we take on a challenge, we see an opportunity that we can leverage or amplify or there's an opportunity that we go, oh, my gosh, I want to make the most of that opportunity. Um, and we look at the bells and whistles and the pretty things, but sometimes we don't address the negative side of it as well. Um, and it's really important to do that. 
But when we look at the opportunities and the negatives or the challenges, we sometimes just look within that comfort zone. These are the things that I'm comfortable talking about. Now, if you've ever been in a committee meeting where everybody's talking about the challenges and the opportunities, sometimes we find there's an elephant in the room somewhere and we go, well, I know it's there and I'm sure everybody else knows it there, but nobody's talking about it. And if we don't talk about this elephant and this elephant does happen, it's either going to destroy the company or destroy our resources, um, or it might be the elephant in the room about your personal relationship or the sporting challenge you're about to take on where you may get a massive injury. The elephant in the room is there, but we sometimes just don't uh, address it. I talk about having those confronting conversations with ourselves in particular, but also with the people that we're around, our family, our peers, our um, colleagues, our bosses about what are those elephants in the room, those absolute confronting conversations um, that if we don't talk about it, it's going to destroy us. And I say that there's two levels of comfort that come from talking about the elephants in the room. The first level of comfort comes from getting rid of the hesitancy because when you know there's an elephant in the room, there's some danger, there's some obstacle there that we haven't addressed, you sometimes go forward tentatively. You're not sure how to go about it. You're not sure what you're doing uh, because if that happens, I don't have a response to it. So there you're in a resilient space, right? And that is that you're waiting for this to happen. And when it happens, maybe I can bounce back from it. We'll see how we go. We should be okay. Um, whereas if you actually confront it and you say, do we have the resources? Do we have the people? Do we have the manpower? Do we have the, the skills? Do we have the training? Actually, yes. Even if that happened, we will be able to manage it. So now we're not going forward tentatively. We're going forward confidently, courageously, boldly, and making decisions that other people go, how can you do that? Well, I know I can handle the worst. So if I can handle the worst, everything else now becomes really comfortable right? It becomes easier to manage. The second level of comfort is that if we address this and we go, do we have the resources? Do we have the finances? All those things. And we go, no, we can't. We should comfortably and confidently be able to say, we need to step away from this decision at the moment. We need to go and get some more finance. We need to get some more training. We need to have another conversation about our relationship. We need to have a conversation about the risk of the uh, physical achievement that we're wanting to do or, you know, all those sorts of things and comfortably say, I'm not ready for managing the worst at the moment, so I need to go and get some more training. So put this into a physical analogy like um, uh, parachuting. Yeah. If you don't actually have all the training for the parachute, you've had some training but you haven't had all the training, would you go and jump without all the training? Absolutely not. You go away <laughs> and you get that more training. And once you've had that training and you feel confident with it, bang, you can go out there boldly, confidently. It's just a, a different – it gives us a different comfort and a different mindset. What's an example from your recent life, so in recent time where you've used this – concept and had a really open, honest conversation with yourself and weighed it up in this way and come to a conclusion based on that, that honest conversation with yourself and the confronting aspect? Wow. Um, uh, so one of the challenges is probably the fact that I've taken a couple of advances in my business where there's been a little bit of a risk to my finances. Um, now I'm doing reasonably well, but these were bigger risks. So I'm taking on some new uh, infrastructure with technology. I'm doing some extra travel um, and meeting some people. We're going and having meetings interstate where I'm going to be you know, forking out quite a few dollars. Um, and 
It's just, is this going to pay off? Isn't this going to pay off? I'm not really sure. So I've had to take a really good look at my finances. If this doesn't go and I just throw all this money away um, and and it's essentially money wasted because there hasn't been a payoff, uh, I mean, wasted is, is a a relative term because, um, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to learn from it. But if, it, if I don't get the payoff that I am hoping for in this, um, will I still be able to keep on going comf- you know, comfortably in my life as well as my business? Um, and I've had to have a look at my finances and make sure that they're all in order. I can manage all the uh, expenses that I have currently um, and still keep going. So uh, I had to have a really confronting conversation with myself about where can I cut back, what can I minimise and when I do go interstate, um, what will I be able to spend? How will I, you know, when I, when I travel, I like to be a little bit extravagant and, and do the nice things and really enjoy the travel. Um, so that's probably one of the places where I've had a really confronting conversation. Which makes sense because the other option to that is people just take action, right? And you go, there's an opportunity. It means I've got to spend a bit of money. Bang. You could go do that and then get down the track and realize, hang on, I actually didn't have the resources to do this. I probably should have assessed it and attacked and taken the action a little bit differently. Yeah, well, the way I look at it is that some people will come up against the same decisions I need to make about the finances and do I have those resources? And they look at it and they go, do you know something? If this opportunity pays off, it's going to be absolutely sensational. So I'm willing to take a risk. And even though it might destroy me if it goes completely wrong, I'm still going to take that risk. I don't care. Let's just see what happens. Whereas I did just take that step back and go, let's just make sure we've got some things in place. And I had to restructure a couple of finances. Um, And, you know, it's allowed me to go forward confidently. I'm still tentative, just want to make sure I get things right. But I know that even if I don't get any payoff out of this directly, um, I'm not going to be destroyed. Business will keep on going. My clients won't be adversely affected. You know, all those sorts of things. Brilliantly. And... I, from a vulnerable kind of perspective, listening to you thinking I've, I've had a lot of um, open, honest, confronting conversations with myself over time. And one of the things I've always said is I'm a real optimistic lover of life. And I remember at one stage years ago, just reflecting and just being in this abundant state of gratitude and thinking, geez, I love life. And then I started to wade up and talking to myself saying, what's what could stop my life from being this good? Like what's, what's actions that I'm taking or what's something that I need to a risk assessment, I guess, without using those words that could make me not have this abundant, awesome life. And then I realized and I had the conversation with myself and I said, you know what? Sometimes I'll have a few drinks and drive and that's drink driving. So if I got caught drink driving or if I hurt someone else drink driving, there's my life as I know it done. What a stupid decision. Cause in Australia, we've got the, the opportunity to have two standard drinks and drive. And, you know, I'll openly say that I've sometimes had more than that and driven, never been blind drunk and driven mind you, but I, start, I waited up and I thought, you know what, that's a really easy thing to change and to not do again, to ensure that one, I don't harm someone else or myself, but two, I can keep living this abundant, happy life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, that is one of the obvious things that people either do or don't have the conversation about because there are some people who go, do you know something, I've got away with it a couple of times, who cares, I'm just going to keep on going, I won't get pulled over. But 
the other side of that conversation is you may not get pulled over on the way home, but you may not make the right judgments and you may have an accident and hurt one of your passengers or one of the other people in the car, which again is that even worse than just losing your license. You could take someone's life. So that's the, the really big conversations that people should be having with themselves. If they take someone's life as a result of an accident they have, how do they live the rest of their life? knowing that they're always going to regret that action. Exactly right. Absolutely. Now, Derek, before we unpack your intriguing story, I just want to say welcome to your life of impact. Thanks very much. It's really good to be here. Um, I've read uh, a little bit about your story. I don't know everything, obviously, Um, but the work that you're doing, um, I'm really, really impressed and, and very happy to be part of this podcast with you. Thanks, mate. Greatly appreciate it. We've been connected. So speaking of the work that I'm doing and used to do, the, the reason why we are connected is because of one of the most beautiful, congruent and inspiring souls that I've been lucky enough to cross paths with in my lifetime. And she was also episode number one on the podcast and that's Katrina Webb. Oh, she was episode number one. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> uh, amazing person. She and I have got a, a great friendship and, um, yeah, yeah, just really appreciate knowing her as well. She's an ins- inspirational person. So if anybody's listening to this, go back to podcast one and listen to that one as well. Exactly right. I've had a lot of listeners say that they've listened to it a few times. It was yeah, right. a great episode to kick things off. Now, Derek, I really want to unpack your human durability model some more in this chat. It's It fully intrigues me and it's so in alignment with my visions and beliefs around human behavior. But it wouldn't make sense to here can continue chatting about that without hearing about your story of adversity that led you to your optimistic and thriving life and this model of human durability. So could you share a bit about your story? So everyone's on the same page. Okay. I, uh, my story essentially is that I was shot 14 times in less than five seconds and lying on the ground for three hours. Now that part of the story intrigues a lot of people. So the history to that is I've been a police officer for 42 years. I joined the police star group, special task and rescue. So responsible for high risk arrests, hostage siege situations, counter-terrorism. I've been close personal protection to the queen when the queen came out, Uh, helicopter operations, cliff rescue, cave rescue, mine rescue, all those sensational things. I absolutely love them, Um, but they obviously come with some inherent risks. So when I went into this arena, I actually had a confronting conversation with myself about, you know, going into this arena, high-risk arrest, hostage siege, counter-terrorism. There's a real possibility I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. And I actually had a conversation with myself, with my my now ex-wife, but my wife at the time, um, and with some of my colleagues uh, and certainly family members about, if I do get shot, how am I going to be able to handle that? Not only if I get shot and injured, but if I get shot and I die, how am I going to be able to manage that? Am I willing to accept that? Um, And so they were big conversations, but I was actually in another conversation with someone the other day, uh, a a guy called Craig Harper. Uh, He's a a performance coach as well. Uh, Amazing guy, but we were having a conversation. And, you know, my history actually goes all the way back to school. The way I've lived my life, the experiences I've had, And some of those experiences include the fact that I was really badly bullied when I was going through school. Um, And they managed bullying back then a little bit different to what they do now. They actually taught us that, you know, this is, well, and particularly my parents 
taught me that, you know, if you're going to get bullied, these are the ways you need to manage the bullying. It wasn't about taking the bully away and working with them and saying, you just go and enjoy yourself. They actually did some work with me and said, you know, if you're getting bullied, these are the sort of things you can do. These are the sort of things you can think. These are the ways you can manage it. And so even those little experiences I had from, you know, whatever age I started, you know, getting, and don't get me wrong, I had some bullying. I also had a sensational life as well. It wasn't all bullying. But, you know, as, as everybody goes through life, we have these experiences. Um, and so, you know, right from the age of, say, eight years old all the way through to, um, I've had some fairly serious bullying in my police life as well. And when I say serious bullying, um, it is serious, but again, my police life has been sensational. These are intermittent little episodes, but it's good to be able to recognise them, acknowledge them and learn from them. And so all the things that I learned and how to deal with these challenges set me up to have this conversation with myself. And it was an open, honest, confronting conversation about I'm going into this environment, I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. If I die, am I willing to accept that as a consequence of the choices that I was making? Um, and do you know something? The, the value of the work that I was doing in Star Group and, and in policing generally, policing is, is a dangerous role where you can go into a confrontation and we hear about police officers being shot probably every day if you look across the world. Um, but certainly there's a number of them being shot uh, in Australia as well, and some of them die. And I had to have a conversation with myself about, am I still prepared to keep on doing this? Is the example that I'm setting to my children, is the example I'm setting to society, is what I'm you know, giving to society worth the fact that I may be shot and injured and may be shot and killed? So I actually had a conversation with my wife and said to her, hey, listen, I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. If I die... What's your life going to look like? What is your life going to look like? Because it was important for her to address that side of it as well. And, and it was something that we were talking about the elephant in the room before. I it, it was an elephant in the room. Everybody knows that police officers may be shot and injured. They may be shot and killed. We carry a gun for a reason. But, you know, there's only about 1% of cops in Australia that actually have that conversation with, my, with their partners about if we get shot, How's that going to impact on the family? How's that going to impact on me? Am I actually fully prepared physically, mentally and emotionally for being able to deal with it? So I'd had this conversation beforehand um, and prepared myself physically with the work that we do in, in Star Group and certainly they're trained us uh, mentally or academically in policy, legislation, standard operating procedures, how to manage injuries physically, uh, the procedures for... Uh, legislation and all those sorts of things. But I took it to one step further and one level further, but I prepared myself emotionally for what I might deal with because there's something that happens in our minds that when our emotions and our rational thinking sit on an even plane, then we can contemplate, we can plan, we can consider, we can make decisions, we can change those plans, we can uh, experiment and try things and reflect and learn and, and be resilient when everything is even. But once we start getting overwhelmed, when we start to lose control, when things start going wrong, when things are bigger than we anticipated, I didn't know this was going to happen. Our emotions go high and our rational thinking goes low. And this is when we're in the fight and flight mode. This is when we're not making smart decisions. We're not making the best decisions. We're making the easiest decisions. The one that will give us some change of some kind uh, as soon as possible because we're in panic mode, fight and flight. 
So I'd had all these conversations beforehand. Um, and so on the 3rd of May, 1994, my section star group were asked to go and arrest a guy. And this guy had a warrant for 197 counts of fraud, not something you normally associate with violence, but we knew his history. So they asked star group to go and arrest him rather than the local police, because we knew there was a, a risk of something going you know, terribly wrong. Um, and we went there, uh, we knocked on the door, we called um, and uh, we said that uh, we wanted to speak to the guy inside. Uh, there was no answer, but we knew he was inside because we had one of our snipers sitting in the bush for about the last 20 minutes, just watching the house, watching him. We knew where he was, we knew he should be answering. Uh, and just out of interest uh, on my uh, website or on YouTube, uh, you will see the video of us actually approaching the house and you'll hear the sound of me being shot and me calling out, I'm hit, I'm hit. Wow. Uh, this, is, this footage is available. So we've called out, we, uh, we want to talk to him, there's no answer, we know he's inside. Uh, at this stage, I've moved down the side of the house towards a glass sliding door because I could see a, sliding, a glass sliding door where we could make a, an entry which would be more efficient and more effective than smashing in through the front door with battering rams and all those sorts of things. And so I went down to have a look at this sliding door and I was just going to have a look to see if it was open or not, come back and tell the sergeant, hey, this is uh, another option down here. And uh, as I got to within about two feet of that sliding door, the guy inside started to shoot and I was the target. He was using a 7.62 or 308 calibre uh, semi-automatic um, Chinese military assault weapon. The same weapon the Chinese use when they go to war. The bullets fired are the same Chinese use when they go to war. And he fired 18 times in less than five seconds. I was hit 14 times with either bullets or shrapnel. Um, and then I was lying on the ground for three hours. Uh, waiting for my mates to come and rescue me. Now, there's a whole heap of detail that I've just skipped over between how I got shot and then I moved to a position where I uh, was lying for two and three quarter hours and, and we can come back to some of those details. But this is essentially just a, a bit of an overview. Um, so did you have a bulletproof vest on, obviously? Yeah, really interesting. Um, and and I, when I'm doing my uh, keynotes or workshops, um, I talk about this bulletproof vest and I ask people, do you understand the term bulletproof vest? And most people start nodding. And then I say, do you understand the term flak vest? Because what we call them is a flak vest. And uh, people go, oh my gosh, no, don't understand flak vest. And I say, well, the term bulletproof vest, they ain't bulletproof. Because I did have one on, um, but this weapon actually goes through the bulletproof vest. Mm -hmm. Flak vest, as we call it. Our flak vest will stop a certain type of bullet but the ones that he was using, it uh, it didn't stop those bullets. So the bullets he was using went through the, the flak vest like a hot knife through butter. Um, it just went straight through. I had a ceramic plate as part of that uh, flak vest and the ceramic plate on my chest uh, was probably about 25 centimetres long and about 15 centimetres wide, uh, harder than metal. Uh, one of the bullets hit that ceramic plate. That ceramic plate could stop that type of bullet. Um, and that hit just underneath the heart lung area. So uh, very fortunate that that plate was there. So it, it could have been a very different outcome if it wasn't for that plate. So how many of the bullets actually did penetrate you? Um, there was one went through my left forearm, uh, broke the bone in two places, severed the radial artery, damaged nerves, stretched tendons. Uh, two bullets went into my stomach. 
Uh, one went through the small intestine, one went through the large intestine, and I lost 45 centimetres of bowel all up. Uh, two bullets went into my left thigh um, and took out a massive amount of uh, meat out of there, missed the femoral artery by the width of a piece of paper. Uh, one bullet went through my right Achilles tendon, 80% of my Achilles tendon for about an inch, inch and a half. Um, and to this day, I only have 20% of my Achilles tendon still holding together. Wow. Inch and a half. Um, another piece of shrapnel went into my right wrist, uh, and that too severed an artery in my right wrist, damaged the nerve in my right wrist. Uh, three bullets skipped across, bullets or bits of shrapnel skipped across the back of my left calf. Uh, just enough to need a few stitches each, so not massive damage, but obviously had to be repaired. Uh, another bullet or a bit of shrapnel, because we don't know that it was just a cut you know, to my body. Uh, another bullet or a bit of shrapnel went through uh, behind my right knee. That needed half a dozen stitches, didn't do any massive damage, but um, it, it certainly needed repairing. Um, and there were three bullets that hit me that didn't actually penetrate into my body. One of them was that bullet in the ceramic plate. Um, and I don't remember what it felt like to be hit in the, in the ceramic plate, but they say it's like being hit with a sledgehammer because <laughs> just the impact on your chest and the bruising behind it uh, is just massive. Uh, another bullet hit a piece of equipment on my left thigh. Uh, that piece of equipment stopped a, a penetration, a third penetration into my left thigh. Um, and another bullet hit an area of my flat vest called the groin flap. Uh, and the groin flap just pulls down to protect the femoral arteries and you know, all that other stuff down there. Mm. But that bullet hit the, the groin flap, uh, didn't go through the groin flap, um, but I count that as uh, a significant hit as well. Now, there are lots of other bits of shrapnel and bits and pieces that, of bits of bullet or bits of projectile from the either the glass or the metal framework of the glass that hit me as well. Um, and they were less significant hits, so I don't count those. But I've still got a bit of shrapnel that I, you know, that sits in my right, in my left wrist. Uh, and that's just a piece of shrapnel that sits in there. It's, it, it's tiny, it's smaller than the, the, the tip of your finger. And I, I, you know, I can sometimes play with it. But over uh, the probably the six to 12 months straight after the shooting, uh, the body was just pushing bits of shrapnel to the surface and out of my body. Oh, I need little bits and pieces. So. Could imagine. Now you said there before you don't remember about what it was like to be hit in with the bullet in the chest, but what do you remember? Did you lose consciousness instantly? Do you have memories of when you did get hit and how it felt? Well, as I approached that glass sliding door, as I was walking up to the sliding door, <clears throat> I actually just started falling to the ground and had no idea why I was falling because I hadn't felt any impact, hadn't heard the sound of gunfire, and I just felt like an idiot because I was just falling to the ground for no reason. Um, and as I was falling to the ground, I looked at the glass sliding door that I was approaching, um, and I was right next to the sliding door about two feet away from the actual handle, um, and the sliding door had small round holes in it that I hadn't seen before. And then I heard the sound of gunfire somewhere in the distance behind it. And I'm already halfway to the ground, uh, but I still didn't feel any pain or impact at this point. Um, but as I'm falling to the ground, I've rationalised myself. I must be falling because I'm getting shot. I've fallen to the ground and onto my back, my feet pointing directly at where the bullet's coming from, my head facing away. And it was while I was lying here on the ground, two bullets hit my left thigh. These are the only two bullets that I can actually remember hitting me. 
Um, and again, these felt like sledgehammers absolutely slamming into my body. But time slowed down and I felt the impact of those two bullets, the shock wave that went up through my body all the way through to the top of my head. And then that ripple effect came back down through my body, back down to the point of impact. And I liken this to like stepping into a bathtub. You know when you step in and a ripple goes to one end and then that ripple comes back down towards you again? That's <laughs> just what it felt like. But then the second bullet hit. And again, I felt that single impact of that bullet and the shock wave went up and the shock wave came back down. And it seemed to be 30 seconds. Now, obviously, these two bullets were part of that volley of 18 bullets in less than five seconds but it just seemed to take that long. They're the only two bullets that I can actually remember hitting me. Um, and having 30 seconds, seemingly 30 seconds to think about it, I just started cursing myself again. How can I possibly lie here for 30 seconds? So I knew I needed to do something to protect myself, to give him some concern for his own safety, that he might consider his own safety more than, you know, trying to put more bullets down range and, and hit me. Um, and so I knew I needed to fire back. But this goes back to how I prepared myself physically, mentally, emotionally for what I could realistically expect to, to encounter in my life. And um, I actually said to myself, if I get shot and injured, what would I like to do as a perfect response? Um, and I put together contingency plans for if I get shot, what would I like to do? A, B, C, D, and that would be absolute perfection. But I also said if I end up down the end of chaos, what might that look like? And if I end up in chaos, what would I be able to do? Okay, Z, Y, X, W, okay, and I'll work backwards there. And how do I influence that to get it back closer to that end of uh, perfection? Um, and so I'd gone through these scenarios in my mind and contingency planned and how would I handle this and how would I handle that? And then I actually put it into a visualization and I saw myself going into these situations. I saw myself in a situation where I get shot and I'm able to respond absolutely perfectly, exactly the way I wanted to. But then I saw myself hitting a challenge and if I hit that challenge, how will I handle that? And if I hit this challenge, how will I handle that? And I prepared myself so well that I was actually able to relax in the midst of this worst nightmare in my life. And I analogise it to like driving a car. You know when you first drive a car, you, your first driving lesson, you're hanging onto that steering wheel and you're absolute panic mode. Oh, my gosh, this beast is going to get away from me. I don't know what I'm doing. And you've got the instructor helping you along and the instructor says, right, turn right. And you go, oh, okay. And, and he says, no, no, you've got to use the indicator. Take your hand off the steering wheel and use the indicator. And you're in this absolute panic mode. Now you're going to take your hand off the steering wheel. But how do you drive now? When you drive now, you're just nice and relaxed. It's easy because you've been through so many scenarios. You've had such good training. You've had such good experiences that you can relax in the midst of it and have thoughts outside of the, the operating and doing what you need to do. Well, that's what happened to me while I was on the ground. Being hit with these two bullets, shockwave through the body, seemingly 30-second period. Um, I've already got my pistol in my hand. I know I need to shoot back at this guy. I can't see him because he's inside the house and the house is dark. But I knew I just needed to fire back and give him something to be concerned about. But before I actually pulled that trigger on that first bullet and returned fire, I realised I was shooting along the length of my body and my at the other end of my body are my legs and at the other end of my legs and my feet. And my feet are pointing up in the air. And I thought to myself, I need to get up just a little bit so I can shoot over the top of my feet. 
Um, but I've got a flak vest on, I've got weaponry, I've got equipment on my upper body. And as I've lifted my upper body up, my feet have come up to counterbalance. <laughs> and the thought that runs through my head was I better not shoot myself in the foot because the guys at work will give me stick about it for the rest of my life. <laughs> Actually, you get shot 14 times and then you shoot yourself as well. <laughs> not the you possibly do. But that's literally the thought that went through my mind. Now, that wasn't being dismissive of risk. It wasn't being in denial. It wasn't accepting reality. It was I was so well prepared for it. I could do everything I needed to do but still have the thoughts outside the square. So when you're driving your car, you're doing everything you need to do. But these days, you can be window shopping as you drive down the main street. You can be talking to the kids. You can be singing tunes but still doing everything you need to do. And that's how it was for me because I'd had those confronting conversations. This is a reality. This could possibly happen. If it does happen, how will I manage it? I'll tell you what I love about hearing you speak about it in that way is because that just goes to show the speed of the human mind. And this is what I talk about with everyone. How would they say we have up to 70,000 thoughts every day? And most of them, when we live life pretty much the same, you know, 90% of those are the same day after day. And if we don't practice what's called metacognition and become aware of our awareness and thinking about our thoughts and understanding ourselves at that deeper level, then a lot of those thoughts will just pass through and subconsciously we start to act from that space and yes. we wonder why our habits and our behaviours and our, uh, our value, why they're not serving us and why our values aren't in congruence and things like that. So when I hear you talking about this, I'm like, it makes complete sense to me because that I get it. That's how fast the mind works. And because of the work that you've done and all of that preparation, then of course you're able to process it in that way. Well, not of course, because there's a lot of physical and physiological challenges that you're going through there with being shot freaking 14 times. But I love it too, because I really hope, and this is to everyone listening, I really hope that what you're taking from this guy that you're listening, that, that, that preparation and those conversations, yes, that's important, but also the fact that that's, that is the way that the human mind works. And this is part of the human experience that it does go that fast. However, with, with practice, you do have the power and the ability to control your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviours. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I've also just thought that, you know, some people go, my gosh, how could you have those thoughts outside of what you're absolutely doing? And, you know, it's something that we practice almost every day when we have a conversation. We're having conversations with people, but as we're talking, we're actually thinking of another conversation. Okay, how do I back up this? What's my next thought that's coming uh, along with this? And then we flow that part, that thought into the conversation. Um, and if we are actually able to, as you say, be mega aware of, of or meta aware of, of what we're doing and those processes, then we can actually amplify that skill to deal with the other challenges as well. Now, this isn't something that you can go, okay, well, I can do that in conversation, so I should be able to do it when I'm getting shot the way Derek did. No, we prepare ourselves incrementally for the next bigger challenge. We can't go and take on this massive challenge and expect to perform at that level. Incrementally, we take on these challenges and build ourselves. We were talking before about the 0.01%ers. We incrementally improve ourselves and we've got to accept that that's the way we're going to do. Sometimes we can take bigger steps, but we can't just go straight to the massive challenge. So, you know, look at your skill set at the moment. How are you using these things for the little things? And then how can you amplify that skill 
to get more out of life. And essentially for me, it's about how do I enjoy my life more? How am I able to relax in the midst of these big challenges and enjoy my life? Well, I can tell you now the work that I do, people's big challenges in life are only big because they've made them big in their mind, in their body with their emotions and therefore in their life. When we look at what big challenges really are compared to the big challenges that we create on our own, then you know, that when we start to weigh it up in that way and give that control, one, the radical responsibility of your thoughts, feelings and behaviours, and then two, the brutal honesty in those conversations like you say, and then the, the action to align with that to ensure that we're prepared for, you know, the world that we live in, there's so many distractions and challenges thrown at us from technology, other people, just everything. So that that is a first world problem. So these that's all the more reason why we've got to prepare for those kind of challenges, um, even if people aren't going to be stepping into such critical life-threatening environments like what you were. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I say, we take on challenges incrementally. So I talk about, when I, when I you know, run workshops or, or talk to people, I talk about the challenges we can realistically expect to encounter as a result of the choices we've made. Now, my choice was to go into the police department very challenging environment, very risky environment. You may be shot and injured, you may be shot and killed just in the police department. I then decided to go on to Star Group. Special task and rescue, high-risk arrest, hostage siege, counter-terrorism. I became a sniper. I was an underwater recovery diver and an and underwater recovery diver, think of Navy SEALs or clearance mm-hmm. divers. Um, and I went and trained with the SAS in counter-terrorism. So with the choices that I made, I prepared myself for the challenges that I could anticipate. Now, if somebody was an accountant, they have very, very different challenges, right? How am I going to manage this massive client? Okay, I've been given this book of ledgers that I've never dealt with something this big before. Um, But incrementally, you've got companies that manage massive accounts. When you first start off, you won't be able to do it. But if you improve incrementally and then surround yourself with people who build you up and help you to grow, um, we can manage those things. But it's about being realistic about the challenges that you face in your life as a result of the choices that you make. Now, put that in another context, I prepared myself for being shot 14 times. If I was thrown into an accountancy business, that would send me around the twist. Mm -hmm. It's not something that I'm passionate about. Um, and I really wouldn't enjoy it and I would be living a life of hell every day. Um, So it's about finding what you enjoy and then preparing yourself so you can enjoy it to the absolute max. Absolutely. Now, I want to dive in that angle a little bit, but I want to go back to something you said about you you were hit with all of these bullets and you've told us about all the shrapnel and everything. You've obviously gone through a lot of blood loss, but you were there for three hours. Talk to me about you know, a bit of that period of time about what you've learned about how, how are you alive physiologically? Well, um, that's something that many people ask, including some of the, uh, the best surgeons in the world are still saying, how am I alive? Uh, the first doctor to get to me in the field, uh, he said when he saw me, he didn't think I was alive. There was no colour, no sound, no uh, breathing. Uh, and um, he, he thought I was already dead. He then said that I took a last, what he describes as a last gasping breath, and they're his words, mm. uh, and he started to work his magic. Uh, in a later uh, TV interview, he actually said that all the textbooks say I should have uh, died, 
the only reason I'm alive is that I hadn't read the textbooks. <laughs> That's brilliant. So you weren't pronounced dead then, or did they obviously think your, your, your heart was still ticking for you to be able to obviously be there that long and take that last gasping breath? Yeah. He, he said when he first saw me, he thought I was dead because there was no movement. There was no sound. There was no breathing uh, and there was no color in my body. And, 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 oh, I need to go back just a little bit here. When he made that assumption that, oh, he's probably already dead, um, he, his medical team, my mates from Star Group, were still standing in direct line of fire. My oh, mates no. had come in, picked me up, got me out, got me to him, and they were still standing in direct line of fire. So when he's making this assessment, oh, I can't see any sound, can't hear any breathing, he's probably dead, should I even bother taking a look at this guy? He was risking his life just to make that assessment. He was risking the lives of everybody else there just to make this assessment. But then when I took this last gasping breath, he committed to treating me for 10 minutes in direct line of fire. Uh, his team committed to supporting him in direct line of fire. Uh, and, and my mates from Star Group, you know, supported that as well. And there's some other stories that you know, I can go into in that moment. Uh, which are a little bit let, more, more light-hearted, but, but that's the overview mm. of when he was doing this. Um, so for the three hours that I was lying on the ground, um, I was monitoring my body, closing down. Um, I had done the training beforehand, you know, if I get injuries, you know, what's going to happen to my body. Uh, most of that was in relation to we did rescues, cliff cave, mine rescues, those sorts of things. So we were highly trained in uh, retrieval first aid. My diving gave me a really good insight into physiology and uh, the use of oxygen in our body and how to conserve it, all those sorts of things. So for the three hours that I was lying on the ground, I knew there were four things that I needed to do. The first one was I need to control panic, not let panic take control of the situation. And, and this is all about preparation. How do we prepare ourselves? Do we have these confronting conversations? Do we have confidence that we have the skills, the aptitude and the mindset to be able to manage these biggest challenges? The second one I needed to do uh, was control shock and that's the effect of blood movement in the body and, and I'm sure you appreciate it and hopefully some of your uh, listeners appreciate it as well. But managing that shock effect on the body so that my body was still functioning to optimal at that time. I also had to slow down my breathing and I had to slow down my uh, heart rate because I knew that if I could control those four things, it would slow down my rate of bleeding and I would survive for just that little bit longer. Uh, but that was a continuous battle for the entire three hours I was lying on the ground because when I was thinking about my body and focusing and managing my body, I wasn't able to actually think about where he was and what mm -hmm. he was doing. And when I started worrying about where he was and what he was doing, my mind, my body, all went into this different mode and when I came back to focusing on my body, I found that my breathing was shallow and panting and my, my heart rate was absolutely racing and I had to really focus and slow it all back down again. Um, but it was a continuous battle for the entire three hours. Um, but that was about going back to that contingency planning and that visualisation. I'd seen myself in these situations before. What did I see myself doing? Okay, those are the things that I need to implement. Uh, it also went back to the training we did with Star Group because um, much of the mindset training about being confident enough to go into counter-terrorist situations and high-risk arrests was about being able to control our mind so that we had confidence in our performance. Um, so it was this whole combination. But I had taken my training to that next level where I started considering 
what's going to happen when my emotions kick in? Mm-hmm. Emotions go high and that rational thinking goes low. Training, procedures, policy all go out the window and we do what we know best or what is easiest to give us some change in the circumstances. Once again, I just want to link this back to everyone listening who hasn't been in a situation like yours. However, you know, you said they're controlling your emotions. You mentioned panic, heart rate, breathing, everything like that. So the the way that I teach people is emotions are energy in motion. So what you've just spoken about there is your understanding and your belief that if your emotions are out of control, then that's obviously depleting your energy. We know that our thoughts, our feelings and behaviors behaviors are all linked. So feelings and emotions being the same sort of thing. Yep. So in that situation with your training, what you were able to do and, and also linking that mind, if you thought about the shooter, your thoughts triggered the emotions of fear, worry, doubt, everything like that, which then makes your body respond to that because that's how we work. Our thoughts, feelings and behaviors are all linked. So your body would respond to that with increased heart rate, um, yeah. which is which is not controlling your panic. It's not controlling your shock. It's not slowing your breathing and it's not slowing your heart rate. So it was the opposite to what you wanted. So right. the reality is, and I work with people that experience high levels of anxiety. And the thing that I teach them the most is around breath work and certain types of breathing that slow their heart rate and, and it's slower control breathing. One, it gives them control because anxiety is a feeling of, you know, worrying about the future and a feeling of lack of control. So also that panic instance is, you know, panic attacks can be a result of anxious outcomes. So really interesting, again, hearing you talk about it in that way, in that experience when you've got dozens of bullets in you and you're almost dead, but you can still go back. It's almost like that. We're only as strong as our weakest link. So if you hadn't done all this training, then probably wouldn't be talking to you today. And yeah, it just it blows my mind. And mind is another one that you talked about with mindset where our mindset is our, our choice and your choice of your mindset in that moment saved your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but it was something that I consciously did beforehand. Um, so that I could sustain the optimal performance and optimal performance is the very best we can possibly do within a given circumstance. Um, other people can do these things as well if they haven't thought beforehand, if they've had lots of experience and from that experience they're able to go, oh, my gosh, what happened to me? How did I manage it back then? Oh, okay, well, what I did back then was this. Um, and then they can actually come back and go, actually, I've got a plan in place. But there's a whole heap of procrastination within that. It's that stepping back and going, oh, what did I do before? How should I do it now? And that time lost can be absolutely crucial. And this is not just for the physical physiology. It can be for your business or anything else as well. But if we prepare ourselves for what we can anticipate and say, what would I like to do as an optimal performance in those circumstances and then actually plan around it, um, Instead of sitting back and going, what should I do? We can actually go, I know exactly what to do. I've thought of this beforehand and go straight into forward action. Well, that's right. That's, that's training. That's practice. That's the way it should be. You're exactly right. And that's what I say to people when I do my breath work workshops with them and, and we talk about this control breathing and coherence breathing and people say, well, how often should we do that? And I say, do it as often as you can and do it in controlled environments so that when all the extra pressures and stress of life come at you and they freaking will, cause that's part of the human experience. Absolutely. 
you, then you go to that in almost automatically. That becomes part of your tool belt that you can tap into to help you in those moments. But I'll guarantee you the more that you practice it, the less those moments will actually occur. Absolutely. I'm just going to pick up on that uh, human experience. There's always going to be challenges. They're going to come at you. Um, I like to talk about take on the challenges that you choose because if you try to get into your comfort zone and stay in your comfort zone, other people will throw challenges at you. They will come from somewhere. There will be changes happening around you that you didn't want and, my God, now I'm going to get pushed out of my comfort zone even though I didn't want to. I just want to sit here. Um, so if we anticipate that there is always going to be challenges in our life, why don't we choose the challenges that we want to take on? And this is what I call talk about optimal performance. We don't want to be sitting around waiting for things to happen and then, oh, my gosh, I have to bounce back and now I can get back into my comfort zone. I've managed that one. Oh, no, something else has happened to me. Let's eliminate all those things that are recurring that we can anticipate and let's take on the challenges that we want to. Now, the challenges aren't always about getting bigger, better, faster, more growth. Sometimes it's about downsizing and proactively going about minimising and proactively going about uh, finding a space where I can just enjoy. But we can't just sit back and hope that things will continue because they will always change. It's not just us that's changing, it's the world around us that are changing. Our children will throw challenges at us, you know, just when we're in this comfortable zone, the kids are moved out, oh, now something's happened to the kids, that upsets my world. Let's just accept there are going to be challenges. Let's prepare for them. So that when they do happen, we can just go, no, nope, I've already got this in plan, comfortably, confidently, uh, confidently take on these challenges, manage them um, and get an optimal performance and continue enjoying life. You mentioned there at the beginning of the chat a couple of times about going beyond resilience. And I wanted to ask you about that, but is, is optimal performance what you mean by beyond resilience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, beyond resilience to optimal performance. So resilience is sitting back, waiting for something to happen. And when it does happen, reflecting, going, okay, I can problem solve this. Let me think, what things do I have to have in place? What things do I have to go and search for? Who do I need to find? Okay, I've got all those things. And then you step back into the fray and you bounce back from whatever that challenge is. If we proactively think about what those challenges might be, um, and have plans in place that if this happens, I'll be able to do X, Y, Z um, because of all the things that I know in the past, but we're proactively thinking about it. When that challenge comes up, we don't go, oh, let me think about it. We go, I've already thought about this, bang, let's take some action right now. I love it. And that's I, that's what I say to people that, you know, I've worked in a lifetime in high performance sport, but I work mostly now with people away from sport and I work with kids in school, I work with stay-at-home parents, I work with CEOs, companies, things like that. And I say, when I talk about performance, I mean your life. Your life is your performance. Let's treat it that way and let's see how you approach it differently. So it sounds like a very similar philosophy there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I was listening to one of your podcasts when you were being interviewed by somebody else. And when I heard you say, your life is your performance or your performance is your life, absolutely, absolutely resonated. Um, because there is no life-work balance. It's about everything is life. Make your life work. Mm, love that. Have I still got you there? Yeah, yeah, still got me yep. here. Sorry, sorry, I thought it cut out. Now, I asked you before why you believe you didn't die physiologically, but what, why do you believe you didn't die that day for are – you, are you a spiritual person? Do you believe that you survived for a greater reason? You're obviously – 
you know, you do a lot of touring and even this podcast now I can guarantee you will shift the way people think and change their perspective of life and help them make choices a bit differently to, to live, help them live more optimally. Are you, do you believe in, in your, your purpose around this or why do you believe you didn't die that day? Okay, so that's, that's obviously a big question. Um, lots of it, uh, lots of it, things in there. Um, so let me first address the, the spiritual side of it. I don't see myself as a, a spiritual person. I uh, grew up attached to the church when I was very, very young, uh, but moved away from the church. And I, I don't believe there's a, a spiritual uh, aspect of my life these days. Um, having said that, there were a couple of different things that happened to me in that three hours while I was on the ground that people who are spiritual relate to a lot. Um, but physiologically, why do I think I survived? I think it's because I had a purpose bigger than me. Now, that's not as big a statement as it might sound initially. My bigger purpose was that while I was on the ground, the one thing that I wanted more than anything else was just to get back to my children and be able to interact with them. It wasn't about me doing massive things. It wasn't about me hitting the speaker's circuit. It wasn't about me traveling the world. It was about just getting back and interacting with my kids. I brought my kids into the world. I wanted to spend my life with my children and be able to uh, influence their lives and assist them in their challenges. Um, And when we talk about open, honest, confronting conversations, and I say I had that conversation with my wife, about if I get shot and injured, I anticipate this. If I get shot and I die, what's your life going to look like? One of the things that I said to my wife uh, when I said I may be shot and injured, I said, bottom line for me is anything better than death is a bonus. Death is a reality, right? If I get shot, I could die. I'm going into circumstances where this is a reality, it could happen. So I said to her, if I get shot and I get injured, Anything better than death is going to be a bonus to me. Now, having said that before the injury actually happened, gave it more credibility uh, and believability once it did happen, what's life going to be like? Remember I said anything better than death is going to be a bonus. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't anticipate it was going to be difficult or struggles or awkward, but so long as I was able to interact with my kids uh, and be able to influence their lives in positive ways, um, that was going to be the ultimate for me. So for the three hours that I was lying on the ground, the one thing that I wanted more than anything else in the world was just to get back to my kids and be able to interact with my kids. Now there's also a bit of a bit of a humorous story within this as well for the three hours that I was lying on the ground. Uh, and it's interesting that you've worked with the Paralympic team um, because one of the things that went through my mind while I was lying on the ground and this, this uh, addresses that mindset of, I'm accepting responsibility for choice, consequence. Now that the consequences happen, I'm now accepting responsibility for making an optimal life after this. So while I was lying on the ground, all I wanted to do was get back to my kids and be able to interact with them. But I was monitoring my body closing down and after a couple of hours realising that my legs are starting to close down, blood is being rerouted away from my legs, away from my arms, into the core of the body. Uh, And I kind of started accepting that my future may be very different uh, from what it was just a couple of hours ago. Uh, I may not be able to run and hop and skip and jump. I may not be able to jump out of helicopters, all those things. Now, remember, while I'm lying on the ground, um, the shooter is still shooting out of the roof of the house. Bullets are flying all around the place. 
Um, I'm still in this mode of uh, where is he, what's he doing, and when he's when I don't know exactly where he is, my body's going into a little bit of free fall, and then I'm concentrating and, and focusing on my body. So um, I'm doing all these things, but I'm also looking at uh, what's my life going to look like after this shooting if I get out of it alive. And one of the things I've consciously accepted is I may spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And if I spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair because of these injuries, you know, how's that going to be interesting? Um, and I started thinking to myself, well, I play basketball already. So if I put basketball together with wheelchair, I may be able to play wheelchair basketball. I love it. And that might not be too bad. Now, remember, this is while bullets are still firing, I'm still managing my body. Mm-hmm. Oh, I may be able to play wheelchair basketball. This is that mindset of let me make the most of the future and what do I need to do now to make the most of it so once I started thinking about wheelchair basketball um policemen do have an ego there's no two ways about it and I'm not shy about my ego um my ego started kicking in and I thought actually I'm damn good at basketball pretty good at basketball not the best but I'm pretty good at basketball (laughs) if I put pretty good at basketball together with wheelchair I may be able to make the Paralympic team. And if I make the Paralympic team, those guys are travelling the world playing basketball. I'm not travelling the world at the moment, and I'd love to travel the world. So actually, this may not be too bad. Now, this is while I'm on the ground, you know, bullets pounding and all that sort of stuff. And then my Star Force ego kicked in. Star Force ego is slightly bigger than a policeman's ego. Um, and, and I see that as a good thing, so long as it's in a positive manner. But my Star Force ego kicked in. And while I'm lying on the ground here, I'm thinking about wheelchair basketball, making the Paralympic team. I thought to myself, actually, those guys are damn good already. They're getting bronze medals. They're getting into that upper echelon of performance. If I can add just a little bit to that, I may end up with a gold medal as a result of getting shot. (laughs) This is while I was lying on the ground, though. It's not, woe is me. It wasn't, why is this happening to me? It wasn't, somebody should be coming and fixing my life for me. It was about how do I make the most of it? Now, we've got to engage with everybody else and get that support that we need, but we've still got to be the drivers of it. We've got to drive that um, so that, get the life we want. That What you're talking about there is acceptance, and that's a re- that I say to people that's a skill and that's one of the first things before you can move forward from most things in life, acceptance, awareness, action. You had that, that skill of acceptance kick in straight away, and I love it. Now, you mentioned there also like your purpose with – getting back to your children and being that loving father it reminds me of have you heard oh sorry read victor frankl's book man's search for meaning um i've read part of it i haven't read it all and that's exactly what it's about is about people who have their why will find their how and that's it just sounded like that you were coming straight from that book the other thing too you mentioned ego we all have an ego if anyone says that they don't have one they're lying so absolutely (laughs) and uh that that story of what you're thinking about representing in the paralympics i had curtis mcgrath on the podcast i've known him very well and he had both of his legs blown off in a landmine accident uh, at, at war and as he was being carried to the chopper uh, by his mates with no legs and blood pouring out, not knowing whether he was going to survive, he said, you boys will see me at the Paralympics. Yeah. <laughs> and he became a Paralympic gold medalist. Uh, yeah, I've got another mate who had a, uh, a motorbike accident. Uh, he was a pilot with Qantas at the time, so it was a few years ago now. Um, and uh, he had a motorbike accident, broke his back, uh, instantly a, a paraplegic. And uh, as soon as he got to hospital and started going through his rehabilitation, one of the things that he said to the doctors is, at least I'll now be able to use those car parks, which are really close to the doors of shopping centres. 
And it was optimism, just switching the mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, what's going to be some of the benefits? How can I make the most of this? And and it's also that you know, let's enjoy the process. If you whinge and bitch and complain and moan and whine and and all those things, nobody else is going to enjoy being around you. Um, and so, you know, it, it's partly about engaging other people, but it's also your own mindset of how can I enjoy this. You know, I can't. A lot of the things that I talk about is one of the one of the things that happened to me on the ground. Um, so I'm going to go back into the story and then come back to this. Uh, and what I'm coming back to is we cannot change the past. We have to be able to accept the present. Cannot change the past. So I've been shot. I I fire back. I roll out of the way of the bullets. Uh, and despite all the injuries I, I've got, I actually managed to get to my feet and I stagger around the corner looking for somewhere safe to hide. I've only gone about seven or eight metres and my legs start growing so weak that, again, I drop to the ground. I crawl along on my knees for about two or three metres and then I drop to my hands and knees, crawl along on my hands and knees uh, for two or three metres and my, uh, eventually I get so exhausted uh, and weak that I fall to the ground, rolled onto my back, and that's where I stay for about the next three hours. Now, I talk about the visualisation and preparing for it and all these things uh, I've got an answer to, but I never once saw myself in a position where I couldn't do something to influence the future. And that's where I found myself now, on the ground, not able to do a thing, and my mind has gone into this complete state of panic. Um, and all I wanted to do in this complete state of panic, and people will be able to relate to this when things go wrong, is my complete state of panic was, just let me turn time back. Let me do everything again. How do I do that? How can mm-hmm. I? And, and my mind actually went into such a panic mode that I remember times when I was a kid and I used to watch Superman on TV and Superman, um, you know, it was real people with CGI as, as it was back then. But Superman jumped into the air and flew around the world against the rotational spin, turned the world backwards, turned time backwards and was able to do things differently and save somebody's life. Uh, in fact, save Lois Lane's life. Well, in my moment of panic as I was lying on the ground and I'm not able to do anything and I, all I wanted to do was work out how I could get Superman to come and do that for me now. That's how irrational my thinking was at that mm. time. Um, but then there was something happened. The shooter started doing something um, and I actually had to click myself into let's face reality. And the one thing that I had to accept is I can't turn time back. I have to be able to accept the present as the present is, if I'm going to have any chance of surviving and certainly prospering in the future. And at that time, my mind went straight back to that contingency planning. Okay, what did I think about before? What do I need to do? How do I do this? Yes, I've got a plan for this. Bang, let's put that into action. Um, and it's and it's that plan of action, that confidence, that being able to relax my mind and control my body and, as I was saying before, manage my physiology, the use of oxygen in my body. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I was extremely fit at that time as well. My resting heart rate was 38 uh, at the time of the shooting. Mm. Um, So that certainly built up. But I think the biggest, the the most important factor in it all was my mindset. Did you go back into the workforce after this or were you dismissed? Did you experience PTSD or any mental, emotional trauma afterwards? Okay, so because I had prepared myself for what I could realistically expect, I also said to myself, if it does happen, what can I expect to happen in my mind as a result of being shot? 
how might I manage the emotions afterwards? And, and I did that in all sorts of realms, not just for if I get shot myself, but if I get into a shooting and I have to shoot someone uh, and I take their life, how might that affect me further down the track? How might my mind handle that? So I'd done all this processing of those emotions beforehand and Part of it was looking at how have I managed these things in the past? What have I done? What have I done well? What do I like to amplify? What would I like to draw on that resource and do it again? Um, and so after the shooting, uh, one of the first things I did was say, get me a psych. I want to talk to a psych. Not because I thought there was something wrong, not because I felt weak or anything else like that. What I wanted to do was exactly the same as I'd done prior to the shooting and I wanted to have a chat with the psych and say, listen, I've had this experience. You've dealt with people who have dealt with similar, similar experiences. Some have dealt with it well. Some have dealt with it badly. What's the difference? What can I anticipate? And how can I best deal with this? Um, and that proactivity, I think, was one of the, the best things I could possibly have done. Now, as you sort of alluded to in, in the way you've answered that, asked that question, is the same as most people think about this, is that, whew, Derek's going, in, uh, going into therapy, he'll be in therapy for decades, you know, and, and that's realistic, you know, with what's happened to him, uh, the massive injuries, the, the rehabilitation he's got in front of me. Therapy would be normal, that's acceptable, and if Derek does that, all, all good, that'd be wonderful. But I went and had a, a conversation with um, world-renowned trauma psych uh, here in Adelaide, and uh, we had about a three-hour meeting, and... I was picking his brains about what could I do, what could I anticipate, how do I manage this. He was picking my brains about what do you already do, what do you know, how might you do this. Uh, and I said, you know, I may experience PTSD, I may experience nightmares, dreams, anxieties, all these things. But if, if it does happen, these are the signs that I'll see. These are the things that I can be able to do. It. I can proactively work with it this way. Um, at the end of that three-hour meeting, just three months after the shooting, uh, he said, Derek, psychologically, I'm clearing you to go back to work tomorrow and I never need to see you again. <laughs> um, and and that is just pure mindset and uh, acceptance commitment uh, type processing. Um, and uh, I never experienced PTSD, anxieties, depressions in relation to the shooting. Now, having said that, I did have some dreams uh, about the shooting, but the dreams always worked out well. So I saw myself in these dreams, I saw myself going into situations with Staris, you know, I've been shot, gone back to work, going into new situations where we're six of us going into deal with 20 offenders and we fight through and we're shooting people, we're defusing bombs, breaking down drug labs, all these sorts of things that, you know, could be massive impact if they go wrong. Um, and apparently I'd toss and turn or I'd be sweating in my sleep. Um, but always had a good outcome, always good came out of it. But I had this one dream where um, I had been shot, gone back to Starry's, and I anticipated, well, sorry, there was a rumour that somebody wanted to shoot me. Uh, and so I was living in the shadows, always hiding, being protective, um, and it was always just a rumour. We don't know whether it's going to happen, we don't know if it's real, but we've got this history. And I remember talking to my partner in my dream, uh, and this is my star group partner. I said, I can't go on living like this. This is this is not life. This is an existence. I'm hiding. I'm scared. If there was a real threat and it was credible, then 
yes, I'd be able to justify what I'm doing, but all I'm doing at the moment is existing, not living. So I need to start living again. If it does happen, then I have all these things in place and I should be able to manage it, but, you know, at least I'm going to enjoy what life I've got. So uh, my dream at that point, as I have moved out of the shadows, my dream has flicked over to where some offenders are loading a sniper's rifle with really sharp bullets. Why they're sharp, I don't know, but it was significant in my dream. Um, but it's flicked over there and they're loading this sniper's rifle and they're obviously lining up on me. Now, uh, my dream has come back to me and uh, the, the offenders have shot me and I've been hit in the shoulder and the pain that I felt at that time uh, woke me out of my dream. And it's the time, the pain you would experience, you would expect to experience from uh, being shot. It was excruciating. It woke me out of my dream. And I sat bolt upright in bed, but I forced myself to keep my eyes closed. I forced myself to go back to sleep because I wanted to find out how the dream finished. Um, and in my dream, I've crawled around, found a nice safe spot, rolled into that safe spot and then woke up and, again, a good outcome. So I call that my pseudo nightmare. Um, but part of that was expecting that I may have these nightmares. And if I do have these nightmares, how do I manage them? Do I go into panic mode? Do I allow them to continue? What might I do? And I think that just proactively going back into my dream and, and finding out how it finished, knowing that I wanted a positive outcome and, uh, and some people talk about, oh, I can't remember the thing that they talk about now with cognitive dreaming. Uh, there's a particular phrase, lucid dreaming. Mm. Um, uh, that people say that that's what I did. I had a lucid dream where I was able to manage the outcome of the dream. But part of that was just the acceptance that these things might hit me. And if they do hit me, how do I actually manage them? Um, now, having said that, I didn't experience PTSD, anxieties, depressions in relation to the shooting. I went back to Star Group. I went back to fully operational. It took me two and a half years of uh, physical therapy to be able to do that. Um, and there were lots of challenges within that. Uh, you know, I, it's that one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, uh, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, you know, and mm. then all over the place, lots of tries and fails and, and all those sorts. Of, and, and I love that word failure. I'm just focus on that for a moment. I have no problem with the word failure. I tried. I did not succeed. It was a failure. But in my mind, it's what do you say when you say failure? Does that failure kill you off and make you want to stop? No. When I say I failed at that, it fires me up and makes me want to keep on driving harder. So it's not about the language we use all the time. It's the meaning that we give to those words. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd gone through all these tries and fails, got back to Star Group, and then there were some things that happened when I was returning to Star Group, not about the shooting but some of the ways that I was being managed that actually sent me into a spiral. Um, and these are not just things that are massive, about massive injuries or anything else. There were some things that the bosses at work were doing, but my marriage had now failed two years after the shooting, uh, and I'm now two and a half years after the shooting, but two years after the shooting, my marriage failed, so I'd moved out. I don't have 24-7 access to my children, which are the people that kept me alive while I was on the ground, that wanting to be with them. Um, I'd taken my dog with me when I left uh, my marriage and my dog was very old and he had now died of a cancer. So there was lots of other things that were impacting on my life and I just felt my life starting to spiral 
I didn't actually recognize it as a mental health issue, but I knew there were some changes happening. So I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't training hard. I was training, but not passionately. Um, I was going through the motions of having friendships at work, but not going out of my way to interact with people. Uh, and most importantly, I wasn't eating well. So I thought, well, if I'm not eating well, I'm obviously missing a lot of energy and I'm just going to go down to the doctor and get a blood test and work out what vitamins I need to take to fix this. Uh, and when I had a conversation with the doctor, he diagnosed me with uh, having mild depression. And I literally sat in the doctor's office and went, seriously? Okay, how do we deal with it? Because, again, when I had that conversation with the psychiatrist three months after the shooting, I said, I may be hit with depression. It may be a reality. I may have nightmares, all these things. And if it does happen, I can proactively work with it. Now, I didn't recognise it as a mental health issue. I just recognised there was changes and I wanted to fix those changes. When I was told it was a mental health issue, that I had depression, I didn't rile away from it. I didn't try to live in denial. I've just gone, okay, this is reality. And it's reality for anybody. You don't have to go through the massive shooting. Mine was about my divorce. My dog died. I didn't have 24-7 access. And I didn't quite have the support that I wanted at work. And that sent me into a depression. But I was diagnosed with depression, did everything that the doctor told, told me to, went back and saw him a month, just one month later. We went through the testing again. And he said, Derek, no, you're fine now. You've got over it. Just monitor it for you know however long for the rest of your life, essentially. But just monitor it, and if you notice some changes, come back and see me. But I had depression, and one month later was cleared of depression. And and I think that's possible. It's possible for anybody to manage depression and get over it. Some people are bigger than others, and some people are further down deep into that hole a lot further than what I was. So it becomes a bigger challenge. So I'm not saying that people should be able to do it in a month and if you can't, there's something wrong. No, sometimes it takes age. Sometimes it takes years, but it's always possible. And that belief that it's possible gives you that optimism that the things I'm doing are going to reward me. And that fires you up. If you believe there's a possible positive outcome, that will keep you pushing. If you don't think there's a possibility of a good outcome, then you're just going to give in to whatever happens to you. That's right. And that's the difference between that optimism and pessimism and, and belief and losing hope for sure. And God, Derek, there's so many things I could unpack with all that, but I'm glad you clarified that around that, that depression. You were just sharing your story. You're not saying, and I've had a lot of people on here that share their stories of mental illness and what worked for them. And everyone is honest and saying, you know what, this is what worked for me, but we understand everyone's different. Some people are wired differently. Some, some people's neurochemistry levels are differently and they need those to go back in balance. Yeah. People's experiences, everything like that. But one thing that is in common with everyone is the human mind and how we operate as people with that thoughts, feelings, behaviors and the ability and the belief and uh, the, the, sorry, the, the ability to be able to progressively work towards it. You mentioned it there before we talked about it offline that it's those incremental gains, those 0.1 percenters and those one percenters that accumulate to the, to the bigger growth over time. And something else you said there before around language and you said, you know, it doesn't matter what the language is, it's the meaning that you give the language. And I love that because that's the way that I educate people around uh, you know, what, what holds us back in life and the fear and the worry and the doubt. And it's the stories in our mind and the stories that we tell ourselves and, and the meaning that we give those stories and whether we believe them or not and our fundamental operating context and how our life pans out and our behaviors and our habits based on the meaning that we give to that language and those stories and those words in our mind. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, and, and it is about the meaning we give to words. I, uh, I won't give a full explanation of this, but I have something in my life called the McManus curse. Um, and without going into it too deep, my friends, when I first started speaking about this McManus curse, and it was first of all a quip, just a, a, a throwaway line that I used with my daughter when we were talking about something and it was lighthearted and comical and, uh, but I, I've started speaking about this McManus curse to some of my friends and they've gone, oh, my God, you've got a curse. How bad is this? What's going wrong? But I call it the antonym of uh, Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law is anything that can go wrong, can go wrong. The McManus curse for me is anything that could possibly go right will go right. <laughs> and it's not because we sit back and wait for it to go right. It's because we're prepared to do the work that we need to do to make it different. It's not just sit back and wait to see what happened. And, and a little bit of a, a history to it. My daughter was about to go travelling overseas and we were talking about the challenges she might have. Um, and I gave her the book, um, Dr. Seuss, The Places We Will Go. <laughs> and he talks about, oh, my gosh, you'll make a bad decision. You'll go down the wrong road. It'll get dark. There'll be horrible people. But you will recognise it and you will be able to do the things that need to be done. You'll get back out of that road and you'll get back on track and you'll start enjoying it again. And it's all these just little bits and pieces about how you will be able to manage it because you're a clever person. Now, we are not all as clever as each other, but I think we are clever enough to manage the challenges that we choose to take on in our life, right? And it's about our life, the challenges in our life. What can I realistically expect to encounter? How can I best prepare them so that I can manage them and enjoy my life? Exactly right. And one thing that you've done really well about doing the work too is that you've created this uh, model of durability of human performance. And I want to encourage you and I could talk all day, Derek, and I want to encourage everyone to, to jump onto your website. I'm going to link that in the show notes. And for people to learn more about, I want them to watch videos. I want people to hire you for their services. Like from this, you can hear that you can step into any environments and work with people from as young as 10-year-old kids. I know you work with all the way through to different styles of leadership and organizations. And there's so much in that model of durability of human performance. And without even just talking about the five elements, we've covered so much of that stuff based on conversation and the relatability of it back to us as individuals and the way that we, like we said, that human experience, the way that we experience life. So before we do wrap up, like I said, we could talk all day. I do have a few questions uh, that I would like to ask. What I'm actually going to do for these last couple of questions is I want to bring the video back up so we can have that showing if you don't mind on on the screen there. Yep. There we are. Good to see you again, mate. (laughs) And so one of the the first question I want to ask is what's three key take-homes that you want to leave with the listeners today? So from your life experiences and your beliefs that they can take action on to allow them to be more impactful and as you say, to live optimally. Yep. Um, so the three take-homes uh, for me, the first one is open, honest, confronting conversations. Don't live in denial uh, except the fact that there's elephants in the room and they're really big challenges and if they happen... There are elephants in the room. Nobody wants to talk about them because they are challenging. Have the conversation about that and understand that there's going to be those two levels of comfort. My God, there's an elephant in the room. It's a massive challenge, but actually we have the resources. We'd be able to deal with that if it goes wrong. Okay, let's move forward confidently. Uh, The other level of comfort is actually it will destroy our lives. Let's comfortably step back 
and go away and prepare ourselves in other ways so that we can manage it. Then come back in and deal with it. So have those open, honest, confronting conversations. Um, the other thing is um, understand where you sit on a continuum of durability. Um, I honestly believe that when we start something absolutely brand new in our life, we're fragile. And it doesn't matter whether it's you, whether it's me, whether any of the listeners, whether they are a CEO or whether they are the first day uh, in a new job or in a new relationship or starting a kid starting in a new school, we're fragile. We're making mistakes. Things aren't going quite right. We're trying to learn the, the new landscape that we're moving into or understand the challenge we're taking on. So we're fragile. We're making mistakes. Uh, we lack confidence. We're nervous. But if we get the right coaching and mentoring and training and teaching, we can move from fragile to resilient. And resilient is where I'm comfortable. I know the landscape now. I've experimented a little bit. I understand it. If things go wrong, I can actually think through the training that I've gone through and I can work out how to solve it and I can bounce back. But I honestly don't believe that we want to sit in that space where we're always fixing problems. So it's about understanding, eliminate all those recurring problems and let's start looking at the next move on from there fragile resilient durable and once i hit durability it's about having confidence courage belief and a system that we operate with um, and that system is individual to us all okay but the most important part about this continuum is understanding where you sit on it at any time uh, at for any challenge Lots of people say, my God, I've become durable. I've become absolute peak operator. And then they take on another challenge, something new again, and they go, I've been a peak operator here. I should start at being a peak operator here. But no, it's a new challenge. So you've got to understand that you actually slide a little bit back along that continuum, depending on how big the challenge is. So if you're at that point of durable, you will slide back to a little bit resilient because you're now doing some more learning. But if you take on a new, if you just get too resilient and you take on a new challenge, you'll slide back into fragile. And if you slide back into fragile, you've got to understand that you're going to need some more coaching, some more mentoring, some more guidance. But if you only slide from durable back to resilient, it's about building your confidence again, understanding your own processes. So understand where you sit on that at any time is really, really important. And also understand that moving back along it and forwards happens all the time, happens to CEOs, happens to you and I, happens to anybody. Um, so that's just, for a lot of people, that just goes, oh, my gosh, everybody else experiences this, experiences this as well. Um, that makes me feel more comfortable. I was actually working with some uh, RAAF pilots over in Williamtown in New South Wales, and one of the pilots said, oh, my gosh, I'd never thought of it that way. Okay, mm -hmm. that makes just such sense. Um, and that's what I like to do, just make things as simple as possible because we all go through the same processes. Um, so open, honest, confronting conversations, understand where you sit on that continuum and what you need to do to develop yourself for those challenges. Um, and the last takeaway uh, would be to engage with what I call a mantra. Um, and my mantra for myself, my, my challenges, is to stay strong. Uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. Stay strong. Know what you want to do. Be passionate about what you're doing. Work in congruence with who you are. That helps you to stay strong physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, find a system, but it's a system that works for you. 
Okay. Now, my system will be similar to your system, but it will have its nuances. Uh, my system would be completely different to somebody else's system, but their system works perfectly well for them, and that's sensational because it's a system that's got to work for you. Um, I had some, obviously, physical challenges and, and had to deal with those. Some doctors gave me certain advice that as a result of what's happened to you, this is what you can expect. And I really didn't like that expectation, so I went and spoke to another doctor and another doctor and another doctor until I found, oh, God, I really like the way you're talking about it. Still doesn't mean I'm going to come out perfect, but that's going to give me a better chance. So I had to find the system that worked for me, um, and then once you find that system, work it, work it, work it, until it starts to plateau or it's not getting the results you want. And if it's not getting the results you want or plateauing, um, it's not about throwing that system out and finding a new one. It's just about tweak it. Just about tweak it, just that little bit. So stay strong physically, mentally, emotionally. Find the system, a system that works for you. Um, work it, work it, work it, and tweak it if necessary. And love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Now, how can we, our, the listeners and I, how can we help you on your journey? Um, listen, there's always people that need to have conversations. Uh, either have those conversations one-on-one or have those conversations as groups or as organisations. So I work with people, I work with leaders um, and I work with organisations and I'm looking at the moment to get into an organisation and change cultures. So have conversations with people. Talk about you, talk about me, talk about our philosophies and just get that conversation happening. And if there's an opportunity to to get into an organisation or work with people, um, go to my website, grab my details um, and give me a call. Um, there's a, a saying that uh, I had in the police department that's just maybe appropriate here. Um, the saying in the police department is people always had reservations. Oh, should we call the police? Shouldn't we call the police? Don't know whether we're wasting their time or not. Uh, and I always said, as a police officer, I would rather be called and not needed than needed and not called. And the same thing here. If you think there's an opportunity, if you think there's something I might be able to do, give me a buzz. Let's have a discussion about it. Always open to a discussion because if you don't call me, you'll never know. If you don't call me, I'll never know about that opportunity. So let's have a discussion. It may lead to nothing, but I'd like to have the conversation. Brilliant. And I'll link up your website and all your details in the show notes. Derek, you're a legend. You're a living example of the abundant power of the human mind and an inspiration to every human living this experience on this planet. Keep shining your optimistic and durable light to the world, my man. Thank you very much. Really appreciate being here, Robbo. Um, you know, just listening to the little bit of your story as well and what I've read about you. Um, I'm in very good company and, and appreciate being interviewed by you. Thank you, mate. There he is, Legends, a living conduit of inspiration who survived 14 bullets to ensure people like you and I could learn from him to live more optimally. Remember the three takeaways from Derek. Have the open, honest, and challenging conversations with yourself. Understand where you are on the continuum of durability and engage with a mantra to help guide you, inspire you, and drive you. You can find out all about these these three takeaways and everything else that we spoke about on Derek's website, plus see the video of him entering that horrific scene and so much more. Derek McManus 
hyperlink.com and I'll link that in the show notes so you can easily just click on the hyperlink and find out all of his details. Also connect with him on LinkedIn or Facebook and like he said, if you feel like he could potentially help you or your organization in some way, give him a buzz. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.